Last week, if you were here with us, uh, Father Lauren Fox, who's one of our ministry partners, came and he preached a message on the generosity of God. And so I thought to myself, great message, and I should follow it up with the generosity that God calls us to have. Seemed appropriate. We serve a generous God. We are called to be generous in response. I don't know if you caught it, but the, uh, the collect that we read, the col- collecting prayer, if you will, for the day, uh, included a reference to charity. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity. Sometimes in the Old English, they would use the word charity in the place of love. I think that was kind of appropriate because we tend to think of love as an emotion. And, and when we think of charity rather than love, we, we're reminded that it's, it's the giving to other people. It's the, it's the generosity towards other people that we're called to have. That is that charity of love that we're to express. God is a generous God. God is a loving God. God is a charitable God. And so I was pretty set on preaching on the generosity that we're called to respond to. But then I really began to dig into the scriptures, and sometimes you have unintended consequences, but we've begun printing out the scripture inserts so that you can follow along. Uh, we want to encourage the reading of the scriptures from the Bibles. Well, we have these pew Bibles with tiny print, and we've tried projecting the scripture. We want to get the scripture into your hearts and minds and heads, and so we've, we've gone to actually printing the scriptures. And as I looked with Tracy over the bulletin insert, I noticed that, oh my, they had included the optional verses from the end of chapter 2 in Timothy chapter 1. Well, believing that God does not make mistakes... I'm not going to dodge those verses for you today. I believe we should take them head on and and look at the whole of Scripture. And so, yes, I do want to, I do want to speak about the the generosity that we're called to have in response, but I first want to tackle a couple of things that I think we need to keep in mind as we're reading Scripture. Those of us who take Scripture seriously, that hold it in high reverence, that believe it in fact is the word of God spoken, that God inspired human authors to write down those things which he wants to impart to us. It is his revelation. Those of us who do that, though, have to be aware of a couple of principles that are at work, even for us who hold high view of Scripture. And I think this is super important. Um, statistics tell us that, that uh, iGen, whatever, whatever you guys are going to call yourselves, Jeremy, but iGeneration or whatever you are, whatever follows the millennials, are more inclined to distrust the Bible and think it doesn't have a bearing on their lives. Perhaps that's because preachers have avoided hard passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2. I don't know, but in humility, let me offer you a couple of points before we jump into the generosity of God. There are two things that I think we need to be aware of. There are two pieces of the scriptures that you were hurt, that you heard that could cause us to become uh, frustrated. First of all, the gospel re- lesson. Is Jesus advocating that we should have dishonest business practices and that somehow we should be buying our friends with money? Is that what Jesus is about? That's the first thing. And then secondly, what about all of these 
references to women being in submission and quiet and, and, and being saved through childbirth. What in the heck is going on with those pa- in those two passages, but particularly in the, second, in the first Timothy passage? Well, here are the two principles that we have to keep in mind for those of us that take Scripture seriously. First is, this, is the uh, principle of harmony. And I will just admit, I'm drawing from... Uh, John Stott, who is a, now a, a, a rector who is now with the Lord. He died a while ago, but John Stott and his writing has been informative for me as I began to think about these things. And Stott reminds us that we have to think about the principle of harmony, which simply means that God is writing in a way that is not contrary to his other word. In other words, God's word does not contradict itself. So right off the bat, when you hear that women are saved through childbirth, that should cause you to scratch your head because that's funny because even Paul says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. So why is Paul, there's no reference to childbearing in that passage. So what in the heck is going on? Harmony is a principle that we have to keep in mind. Whenever we come across a scripture that is difficult, something in the Old Testament, something that we, we struggle to understand how it fits, we have to keep in mind the principle of harmony, that God's word does not contradict itself. And so even while we can't maybe see with our eyes and minds and hearts right now what God intends, we yet believe that God and his word is in harmony. God is a charitable God. God is a generous God. Second principle is the principle of history. God's word is not contrary to itself. God's word is also given to us in the context of human history. What do I mean by that? I mean that that God didn't simply just dictate to writers, write this eternal principle. And there's, it's not like a book of rules or a book of sayings or a book of Proverbs. God chose rather to bless one particular culture, the culture of the Israelites, and to reveal himself, his word, through that culture. Now that's really important because it means God values humans. He, and he values our humanity. He values our cultures. It's not, it's not unimportant to him. In fact, he blessed culture and he blessed humanity by entering into a particular cultural context, the, the context of the Israelites. But because of that, we have all of this cultural trappings, if you will, cultural framework that we have to understand and work through. And so we can't simply just read it and go, okay, literally this is what it says and go forward because of the culture that's there. Let me give you a for instance from our gospel. In this passage, what we don't usually know is 21st century Americans is that for a Jewish businessman, it was prohibited in the law to offer any sort of, to have any sort of, um, to charge any interest on a loan to another Jewish person. Now, Jewish business people, like American business people, are shrewd, and they're, they're really good at figuring out ways to get around rules. And so what they did in ancient Israel is that they would, if I loaned John 50 barrels of wine, I would say to John, now remember, John, I loaned you 100 barrels of wine, right? 
And John would say, yes, you loaned me 100 barrels of wine. And so we'd write down 100 barrels of wine. And lo and behold, even though he only got 50, I got 100, which was my interest paid to him. But on the books, it all looked legal and real. And that's the way first century Jewish practice was going on among the business people. So when Jesus tells this parable... He understands the cultural context. He's, he's in the first century. He's writing to first century people, Jewish people, and he understands. It's not that this manager is somehow stealing from the master. He's simply cutting out the interest. And obviously the two different commodities required a different amount of interest. Oil was much more profitable than wheat, and so the markup on the oil was greater than the markup on the oil. So what the, what the, what, when you clear away that cultural context, you understand that what Jesus is saying is, is it's nothing really to do with, with cheating the master, but rather recognizing that unrighteous money is a tool to be used and that we should be focused on making friends and not making money. Use money to make friends. Don't use people to make money. That is a sermon I think that would preach in the 21st century. But first of all, we have to clean away some of the cultural distance. We have to remove that. In the same way, I think that's what's going on in the passage in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You have to understand the context of what's going on. So these, these, two, these two principles are going on. Harmony. God's word is not contrary to itself. And history, God's word is embedded in culture that has to be understood and, and cleaned up and worked through if we're to understand. Now to be an, a literalist is to take everything at face value. Maybe you know some Christians who believe that, that God's word says that women should not have short hair and so they have really long hair and they never cut it. And they believe, and some, some groups believe that you should always have your head covered. These are things that are found in Scripture. But they literally take them to mean that every time we need to have a head covering or long hair. It's a bit interesting to me um, by that literal framework that if you go to the end of Paul's letter, and I think probably many times they're not inclined to do this, they go to the end of the letter. Paul says, you know, when you're at night, you should drink a little bit of wine along with water to settle your stomach. Why is it that we take literally the length of our hair or the hair head covering, but don't take literally Paul's admonition to Timothy that he should take a little bit of wine along with the water? So it's really hard to be a literalist, to, to enthrone the cultural context. The other side of the pendulum is that oftentimes people enthrone the cultural context in a way that says, look, it's too messy. Look at what Paul's saying about women. How can we possibly trust anything that Paul has to say? His witness is tainted because clearly he was a sexist. He was a male chauvinist and we should discount him completely. To go that far side is to, is to, is to conclude that there's nothing that we can bring from scripture because it's so interwoven with the, uh, the first century context. I think oftentimes our conversations about sexual ethics get into this situation where we, we can't separate the context of the first century from what the Lord might be saying that's pertinent to all of us. John Stott suggests a third way, a middle way. 
And that third way is cultural transposition. He's a theologian, so you wouldn't expect anything less than a fancy word. Cultural transposition. But basically it means that you have to do the hard work of separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Of separating the timeless truth of what is important for us in this day and time and what is just culturally relevant to the time period that was in but no longer applies to us. Much harder, and I would commend to you, requires much more charity on the part of those of us who would be followers of Jesus. Well, as I said, once you peel back the cultural context of of the way money was loaned and interest was received in the first century, you can get past the the, the difficulty of the, the, the parable and get on to what Jesus is saying. Don't worship money. You can't serve both money and God. End of the story, Jesus says. The same way I think you have to look at the Timothy passage and recognize that, that Paul is writing to, to Timothy, who's the pastor of a church at a place called Ephesus, where the letter of Ephesians is written. And in Ephesus, there is a temple to Diana, a feminine god, also known as Artemis. And in this worship of Diana in, in, in the temple and in the city of Ephesus, there was a female-dominated society. Imagine that, ladies, a female-dominated society. Sort of like the Amazons, right? Wonder Woman's story, if you know anything about the backstory of Wonder Woman. And into that context, Paul and Timothy and the gospel go. And so I believe what's going on here is that Paul is addressing the specifics of this Ephesus situation, this context where there is a female-dominated religion, where, where the women are the priestesses that, that, that preach and teach and have, and have brought about this false religion of, of, the, of worship towards Diana that Paul is speaking into. That explains why In this context, he calls Christian women, followers of Jesus, to remain silent in their learning, to be submissive to their husbands in learning and to not speak. It is because of the religious context that Paul is writing into. To go along with that, there's also a a false teaching that's, that's prevalent, probably borrowed from the religion of Diana, that suggests that somehow women have given life to men. Now, obviously, I have a mother. Every man in this room has a mother. So yes, women did give life to men. But what this, this false teaching implied was that somehow that, that women spiritually gave life, like spiritual life, into men. And so Paul is trying to correct that by reminding the, the, the people of Ephesus that in fact God created the man first and then he created the woman from the man. It's not... It's not a play for superiority. It's a play to rectify a false teaching that's going on in the church. And then to cap it all off, this, this false teaching went so far as to say that, and this, again, this is what you call synchronicity, where you begin to blend religions. They began to, the women in Ephesus, even some of the Christians began to believe that, well, because the resurrection has already happened and we're already living in the new order, that we should abstain from sexual relations with our husbands. Because we're so holy. 
And so Paul has to speak a word to that and says, no, in fact, you're blessed through, your, through childbirth. It's not a curse. It's not about the old nature and it's passed away, but in fact, it is a relevance. Paul was probably concerned that the population of the Christian church at Ephesus was going to go to zero if he didn't correct this heresy. But read from first century, man, Paul's a masochist. He is out to just, you know, well, I mean, talk about, talk about being a male chauvinist. Here it is. But we have to pull back the context. Now, this may seem like a, a huge digression, but Again, I think that if we can't, we can't come into these hard passages and explain them, particularly to our children and grandchildren, they're susceptible to every anti-Christian rhetoric that they are presented with. And they have no tools to fight back. We're not literalists, but we're also not ones who capitulate to the culture and say, well, the culture of first century was so different, it's irrelevant to today. We we strive to find the truth between the two. Paul says, raise holy hands, men, and quit quarreling. There's something to be learned there. He says women should be modest in their dress. There's something to be learned from that. There's probably something to be learned for, for authority and submission for men and women in what Paul's saying here to the, to the Ephesians through Timothy. But we have to find a way with charity and grace it with if you will generosity to read scripture can I commend to you that when you come across a passage that you don't understand that you exercise the same sort of charity that Paul calls us to have towards one another and that Jesus calls us to have have that same charity toward God and his word God has sent his son into the world that we might know him, that we might walk through life with him, that he might give us life and teach us to understand the way that leads to life and not to death. Well, now I'm ready to preach the whole sermon on the charity response to God. Enough prelude, enough, no. But let me do point out one thing. Probably as Andrew began to read verses 8 through 15 of 1 Timothy 2, probably all of you forgot what Paul said in the first part of 1 Timothy 2. If I was to take a quiz and to ask you right now what those first verses were, without looking, you'd be hard-pressed to look. Well, let me remind you by turning over there with you to that 1 Timothy. What, is, what does Paul say? He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, be generous in your prayer. Pray for all people, not just for Christians, not just for Americans, but for all people. We even here at Servants, we even pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because Paul says that we are to be generous, charitable in our prayers, which is why we have prayers of the people, why we take so much time to pray not only for the church, but also for our leaders 
and for those around the world. Why? Why, Paul? Well, because that's the seed by which the church grows and the gospel is presented. A peaceful world is the best place. A quiet life is the best way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forward. And then Paul reminds us again, because we serve a God who's been very generous towards us, very gracious towards us. This is pleasing in the sight of, the, of the God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved. That all would come to the spiritual, moral salvation of God. God desires that all would be saved. God's gracious, his generous offer is that all would come to him through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just the gift to the church. He is a gift to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this morning, the the call is to respond in generosity. Respond in charity. First of all, towards the Lord who's granted you salvation as you seek to understand his word. Be gracious and charitable even when you have difficulty understanding what particular verses might say. Secondly, be generous with your money. Demonstrate that God, in fact, is God in your life and not money by being willing to give away your money that you might gain relationships. And thirdly, be generous with your prayers. Intercede for your coworkers, even those who look for opportunities to discourage you because of your faith in Christ. Even of the, for those who seem to work in an antithetical way against the cause of Christ. We, Paul says, we are to be generous people. Generous with our money, generous with our learning, generous with our prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.